WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina. This is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Chef Elena Regan earned her first Michelin star in 2014. It was a year after opening her celebrated Chicago restaurant, Elizabeth, which was named after her late sister. She went on to earn another five consecutive Michelin stars until she left Elizabeth in 2020. She and her wife, Anna Hamlin, purchased the Milkweed Inn on Michigan's Upper Peninsula in 2019. Nestled within a woodsy 270-acre spread within the Hiawatha National Forest, the two host about a dozen guests who come to hike, fish, and forage. But the highlight is dining on Elena Regan's meals, composed of mostly foraged and locally available food. Her first memoir, yes, there are two, was longlisted in 2019 for the National Book Award. It had been 39 years since a chef attracted this kind of literary attention when Julia Child won the award in 1980. Burn the Place chronicles Elena Regan's Indiana farmhouse upbringing with parents and grandparents who taught her foraging, a love of cooking, and the skills that would eventually lead her to those six Michelin stars. Her second book, Fieldwork, a forager's memoir, was dubbed A Love Letter to the Land by the Washington Post. It's memoir, it's field notes, and it's a deep exploration of connections among the living things that inhabit Earth, from mushrooms to wolves to birds to people. Her most recent foraging expedition brought her to Wilmington, North Carolina, where she mucked about the marsh with fisherman Anna Shellam and good friend Vic Roberts, both of whom have appeared on Coastline. Elena Regan, welcome to Wilmington and welcome to Coastline. Thanks. This is great. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you with us. Mm -hmm. So many chefs who've written books start with cookbooks because Mm -hmm. that's how they become known in the first place. So you started with a memoir and went to another form of memoir in a way. Why memoir first? That was something my um, publisher and I had decided, and I am signed with him for a cookbook as well. But now that I've done a memoir followed by the second memoir, um, and I've always loved narrative writing, um, I asked him, I said, you know, this cookbook situation. Um, First of all, as a chef, I I don't have very many recipes, as you can see from what I write about. A lot of my cooking comes from intuition and um, just oftentimes playing around in the kitchen. I have a good memory so I can uh, recreate my dishes, but I really at this point feel like um, A cookbook is not something that I'm meant to write, and most of the things that I cook, um, you know, it's like you make this thing, and then you make this other thing, and then you wait three years, or you find this ingredient that only comes out two weeks out of an entire year. So a cookbook that I would write wouldn't necessarily work for most people at home. Um, so, So I am actually working on a third book, which is a narrative cookbook, and so Burn the Places About My Life and Fieldwork kind of wraps around what's currently happening. And this next one is sort of a prequel. 
Um, and it's going to be a narrative cookbook about all the recipes that happened at my family's restaurant, which is there's a, a chapter in, in Burn the Place and a chapter in here that talks about that. So um, anyways, yeah, so yeah. No, no cookbook for me, I guess. <laughs> so what you say about maybe a lot of the ingredients not being easily accessible to mm-hmm. Mainstream Americans, that that makes complete sense. And you talk about using this intuitive kind of moment by moment approach mm-hmm. to cooking. So how does that? I mean, you've also experimented with things like powders and gels mm-hmm. to to enhance flavors, which seems so like it would require absolute precision. Mm-hmm. So how do you kind of balance those two approaches? Well, there are absolutely things that are recipe-based, but I mostly work on the idea of ratios. So if I'm making something and I'm adding salt, so for example, if I'm, um, I, I talk about this in field work, fermenting trout lilies, because trout lilies only come out very early in the spring, and then they have these beautiful yellow flowers that are maybe in existence for about a week, and I'll collect those yellow flowers because the raw trout lily tastes just like cucumber. And so I might make little pickles out of them by fermenting them and a touch of salt. So to do that, I know that no matter how much I have, I weigh that and then I add a percentage of salt to that, um, which allows me to complete the, the fermentation. So a lot of it becomes almost scientific rather than um, you know, there's like a little bit of a scientific alchemy to it rather than just, um, you know, following a recipe. Right. What is a trout lily? So trout lily is, I, I want to say, uh, well, something I should just back up. So even though I'm often out in the woods and, you know, I have a forager's memoir, I am by no means a mycologist or a botanist or uh, anything like that. So um, I can't tell you the scientific name of what it is. Um, but what I will say is I know it is a spring green, at least in the Midwest, usually around um, land that is a little bit um, marshier. And um, so it looks a little bit like a ramp, but it has these brown spots on it. It's a little bit more silky and succulent than a ramp, but uh has some brown spots that make the outside look like a trout. So that's where the name trout lily comes from. But it's in the lily family, which, if I'm correct, is in the allium family. So so that's what, what you have there in, in the leaves and the flowers. And there's little bulbs underneath the ground. The bulbs taste like a little cross between like a potato, jicama, an onion, but they're very mild, they're very small, and they're complicated to clean. But, uh, you know, there's all these different parts of the plant that are edible. And well, just like a lot of wild things, or even just like a lot of our um, normal produce, um, you know, there can be levels of toxicity in them. So you don't want to have, you know, you don't want to eat a whole huge bowl of trout lilies, just like you don't want to eat a whole huge bowl of raw green peppers. But um, yeah, so I'm not sure if I answered your question. Yeah, I think you did very (laughs) thoroughly. And you prefaced it with I'm not a mycologist, (laughs) which you say a lot. Mm -hmm. Is that 
Is that some sort of legal disclaimer, or why is that so important to you to remind people? Well, I think it's important because when people do come to Milkweed, um, or just even online, people will, at Milkweed, people will bring me mushrooms that when they're out hiking, they'll bring back a bunch of everything and just be like, what's this one? What's this one? What's this one? Well, there's thousands of species and, and different kinds, and I know maybe like 20, which are 20 that are edible, you know, and so um, I haven't studied them. I just, you know, over the years have been like, oh, I know this one's edible or that one's edible, and that those are the ones that I always use, usually, if I was out foraging, were looking for or you know, maybe reading more about. Um, same thing with wild greens and berries. There's the ones that I know are for sure hits, and I'm kind of an anxious person, so I don't try to th- discover new edible things. That's not for me. So I'm just always <laughs> looking for the ones that I know for sure. But I do love to read mushroom books and foraging books um, and wild plant books and um, medicinal uh, plant books to learn about the other things that are out there that could maybe be something new for me. Um, But yeah, I'm just very cautious in that way. So I do like to remind people so that they know that they can't feel extra safe around me, maybe grabbing something to like a mushroom and saying, oh, what is this? Uh, I'm I'm very cautious about it. I think I learned that from my dad. That makes sense. And mushrooms are so much a part of your, your upbringing, not just your life as a chef and a forager. Mm-hmm. You talk about mushrooms a lot in both books. And you mm-hmm. talk about uh, the moment you became a chef, mm-hmm. was that connected to cooking mushrooms? Yeah, I mean, when I'm thinking about it in in that way, that was something that was in Burn the Place, and I have the story about my dad and I hunting chanterelles um, and us bringing them home and cooking them. And that was, we just, between my mom and my dad, we cooked so much at the house. And as you know, they're from a restaurant, we're somewhat of a restaurant family and a homesteading family and a small farm family. So there was always something fresh and in season that we were making. And there was something that just was so powerful to me and so impressionable to me as a young child that being out in the woods and actually collecting our dinner and then being able to come home and cook it, I think, yeah, was absolutely the thing that um, led me into the the restaurant industry. And going back to the safety of mushrooms, I know we're going to have to go to break in just a minute, but mm-hmm. you, you said you're so cautious. There are mushrooms that are lookalikes, like oh, yes. an edible mushroom and an inedible mushroom mm-hmm. that look very much alike. How do you tell the difference? Well, those are some of the ones that uh, I, over the years, have been more cautious about and stay away from. So unless I can absolutely identify it, then I usually, um, you know, I only do the ones I can identify. You're listening to Coastline. Michelin-starred chef Elena Regan is my guest today. Her most recent book, Fieldwork, 
A Forager's Memoir. We'll be back with more after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Elena Regan earned six Michelin stars during her time at the acclaimed Chicago restaurant Elizabeth. She's written two books. Her most recent, Fieldwork, a Forager's Memoir. She is owner and chef of the Milkweed Inn in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And in that book, well, in both books, Elena, you talk a lot about fear. You you really examine your fears and mm-hmm. In the second book, in field work, you actually get to the point where you decide to write a fear inventory. Can you just tell us briefly what led to that? Well, I think a big part of that was that um, over the past couple years, probably because in 2020 there was a pandemic, we suddenly felt like there was absolutely no way for any of us as individuals or Um, as a collective to control something like that. And um, so that really kind of um, just gave me, like it did for many people, a little bit of a slow burn trauma. And so that was one thing. But then I also noticed how, you know, without having my my restaurant career, which was just, you know, the thing that I do, it... um, I started to become a little bit more fearful, I think, of everything. It's just like suddenly um, this part of me that where I keep fear, like somebody opened the floodgates. And so then I started to think about all the other things that that um, I fear. And so, again, I don't let them control my life, but it felt like at one time I was having uh, phobophobia, just like the fear of fearing things, yeah. you know. <laughs> so... Um, so and and I like to be honest when I'm writing my memoirs and also entertaining and so there is a certain level of uh, entertainment I think when you really dig into yourself and can somewhat laugh about and share with others these ideas that might sound a little bit crazy but um, a lot of us go through it so exactly I think that's what it allows you know it to touch others and then to become vulnerable you know so so that i believe that's where that all comes from yeah and that, and that was part of what was so delightful about reading that particular section is mm-hmm. um you allowed us in to what might seem irrational mm-hmm. and yet all of our brains mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do those things and mm-hmm. go to those places. And so yeah. would you read a little bit of that for yeah, us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let me just see here. I was going to – this is from Chapter 10, A Fear Inventory. So I'm a couple pages in where I'm starting, and it starts, I'm terrified by all that I fear. 
how easy it would be for an intruder to break into the cabin, a big guy or multiples thereof, many big guys, because of course it would be guys. Ladies don't just break into cabins. Would we be here or would we not? Would they be coming for us or just looting the place? Or more simply, with intent to vandalize. They'd pour gasoline around the perimeter and strike a match or throw a Molotov cocktail through the window, blow up the place. They could or would have guns, depending if it was premeditated or a crime of opportunity while out on their snowmobiles, when no one else would possibly be out here because it's nearly impossible to pass when there's snow even with a machine designed for such terrain and weather. Crimes of opportunity are around every corner. There are many places to hide a cadaver or two. Would the intruders come through the basement or one of the windows or just through the door, busted open? There are no deadbolts. I've locked myself out and easily slipped back in with a credit card and ID. IDs are usually better for this sort of thing, being a little bit stronger. But the intruders wouldn't have either. Their IDs were probably confiscated by the authorities after a second or third DUI. <laughs> Having not completed the AA meetings required to get the slip signed for the court, they would be without. And there is no easy way to get a credit card if you have a few other cards that are already maxed and expired. Busted open is what they'd do. They wouldn't be afraid of making noise because there is no one out here to hear them. Because of this horrid thought, before bed I pushed a small table in the loft of the top of the landing of the stairs and stacked two chairs on top of it and several behind it. I figured them having to climb over that would give enough time for me to get the loaded cowboy gun, which was on the dresser behind the picture of Anna and me at the wedding shower her family insisted on throwing for us. All the ways I could die out here, wolves and bears, though they are the least likely, but I can't shake it. More likely is cancer, brain, throat, lung, breast. I could go on. The possibilities are endless. They say not having children puts you at risk for one or the others, mostly breast. Is that true or just sort, sort, some sort of propaganda to get humans to procreate? It's hard to know these days what is real and what isn't. I drink one cup of green tea every day steeped with shaved bits of chaga and turkey tail fungus. These are said to be cancer-fighting agents. But then I also smoke cigarettes, so it gets canceled out. I don't smoke many, but still. During hunting season, I could get hit by a stray bullet. Hunters wouldn't be expecting me to be searching for mushrooms, even though I wear the dayglow beanie. If they're firing a gun with a large caliber, a bullet could reach me somewhere they didn't even know I was walking. That would be terrible, but could be a much faster end than cancer or a crime of opportunity. Among the many possibilities when it comes to dying, there is also falling asleep at the wheel, heart attack, and stroke. Bunny was killed by one of those. There's high blood pressure. Dad's got that. A logging machine with the long saurian neck busting through the windshield while I drive past. The tall piles of logs tumbling down on me as I rumble over the washboard path. A head-on collision with King Tom or Whiskey Bent, or the guy who's best in the bush. I shouldn't assume that's a guy, but come on, I probably can. Though women can and do drive logging semis. A multitude of forest fires, or a fire in the cabin caused by the creosote buildup in the chimney, just as Dad feared. 
a propane gas leak, asphyxiation, drowning in the river, misidentifying a poisonous mushroom, some unknown allergy, a poisonous spider bite, though I don't think we have many poisonous spiders out here. But you know what I'm saying, exhaustion, appendicitis, the chainsaw could slip while I'm cutting firewood, hit my leg at a major artery, and I bleed to death. Bleeding to death in general, the hospital is more than an hour away. How we'll never catch up financially. I fear something will happen, any number of things, and we won't be able to operate, and certainly won't have the money to refund people. The pandemic set us more than a year behind. There were lots of necessary refunds and many other related expenses for that matter. We will be hosting guests for another year and a half before we can make any more money and will continue having to sell reservations, pop-ups, and classes well into the future to keep going. This is what I fear most about that. Something will happen to me, any of the above, and there will be no way to make people whole. We'll have to sell everything and still won't be able to get people their money back. Gambling addiction runs in my family. I fear it's got me by the balls, because why else would I be doing this? Even with many years of Michelin stars behind me, the restaurant industry is a gamble, though I don't gamble like lottery or casino type of gambling. If I've become dad, I would, would I be as dangerous as him? I worry about it more and more with each passing day. I've always had anxiety, but I am inheriting his anxiety and his fears. They're different than mine. They've always been more intense. I fear fear, and I'm anxious about it. Late-stage capitalism, the crumbling economy and infrastructure, globalization, plastics and microplastics and everything, billionaires going to space for no good reason, Wildfires, dwindling freshwater reservoirs, melting ice caps, rising seawaters, dying ocean life, overpopulation, and logging, the destructiveness of which I witness daily. That I'll never be able to sleep well again. It used to be so easy when I ran the restaurants full time. I fell asleep from pure exhaustion, yet now it's somehow that the exhaustion is the very thing keeping me up. My brain is on fire. When there are guests at Milkweed, it's nearly impossible to fall asleep, even if I go through all my mental lists of wild edibles. I recently began using a mantra, it's okay, you're okay, it's okay, you're okay. I'm mostly worried about keeping them safe among the wilderness. There are so many things to worry about when you host city slickers in the wild. That was Elena Regan reading from her memoir, Fieldwork. A forager's memoir. Thank you for that. You're I I want to ask you about the fear of men, but uh, first, you have in the in the very beginning of the book, you talk about a man in line at the local truck stop mm-hmm. who is saying, uh, "This is God's country," and what you make it mean in your head. You, you make it mean exclusivity and rejection and xenophobia and all mm-hmm. kinds of other, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know if it's supremacist or or mm-hmm. exclusionary kinds of, of thinking. And you you could have left it there, mm-hmm. but you didn't. And then mm-hmm. you, you talk later about realizing, oh, you know this guy. You recognize he's a good guy. And that whole – that story is – I, I thought it was 
it was really moving, but it was it was such an illustration of what our minds do mm-hmm. out of out of fear. Why was that story important to you to include? I think it was important because of where we are up there in in the upper peninsula and it is it does feel very exclusionary um even though it's not necessarily um and so and you know when you live somewhere that is not within a major city and you get to more rural places there's a political divide and you see it more frequently that things are very purple which I'm sure people here are very used to and I think that that was something that was a little bit newer to me because for so long I had I grew up in a very democratic liberal union family and um, then I've lived in Chicago for years and years and uh, over the past several years I think some of this stuff has become much louder and much more apparent and so it was important for me to include that because it was also a realization that I had that I think that I was probably judging people more than I was being judged. And I was fearing people more than they were fearing me um, when in my mind somehow that's reversed. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, that that just became important because almost everybody that I've encountered in um, in Upper Michigan has been so helpful. And even though I know that we have differences of opinions, maybe about um, politics or, you know, social systems or, you know, finances, et cetera, um, we're still underneath it all human and want to help each other. And so I think that that was something that's been really nice that I've been able to experience. It's kind of like I'm this person who thinks I have an open mind, but I realized it needed to open more. Um, So, um, yeah, I think that that's why that got in there. Also, you know, uh, uh, I think that people want to be mad at, like, the logging industry. But, like, we're all the ones, city or non-city, rural, whatever, blue, red, like, everybody needs the stinking wood, you know? So it's not their fault. Like, capitalism is the reason (laughs) that our forests are dwindling and we all live here. So there's almost nothing that I think... uh, anybody touches that isn't somehow connected to some sort of maybe necessary evil. I don't know. So anyways, that was maybe a a larger symbol and theme behind some of these stories. Yeah. You do have a real fear of like people you say in multiple places, and I think in both books, Mm -hmm. that people scare you more than anything else. I mean, there Mm -hmm. are all these other things like wolves or bears or Mm -hmm. um, eating a poison mushroom, (laughs) but people are the scariest, especially men. And so where did this fear of men come from, do you think? Well, I think that that is something that as women, um, and I can't speak for every woman because maybe some women feel protected by men, but I feel much more that, you know, that if I'm thinking about 
I believe that women grow up with the fear, many do, of being violence acted upon them, and it's usually at the hands of men, um, violence either, um, you know, physically or sexually. And um, men, some of the things that they have to worry about is being made fun of by women. But aside from that, that women are not necessarily <laughs> going to hurt them. Right. So except for their feelings. And um, so that, that um, I just, I don't know, you know, maybe it came from a past life. I can't say it because my dad was, I mean, he was oftentimes very rage filled, um, but he had never, ever struck me. Maybe sometimes I saw him do something like that to my sisters. Um, I did have a creepy uncle, but he ever never actually, um, you know, harmed me physically, maybe mentally. But so I, I, you know, like I don't have any exact basis for that. So but I also don't have... You know, I've also never been in a plane crash, and I just recently came here and was like, I can't fly. So then instead of flying here like I was supposed to, um, I got in the car and drove, you know. So I can't say exactly how all these fears happen. Again, I don't let them, um, well, they could definitely ruin my time frame driving instead of flying. But, um, you know, I, I have plenty of... Um, men in my life that are very important to me, but I think that it's just one of those things that uh, has been, um, you know, happened just, you know, you, you, you sense from a very young age, at least I did, that men had the power and women did not. I think that's also where some of my gender dysphoria as a young person came from because I saw men had the power and I was like, I want to be the boy. I don't want to be scared because as a girl, I feel scared. So I'm sure there's a lot more to that psychologically, but in a nutshell, you know, there's that. Um, but I also do sometimes feel very protected by men. We have a, a really good neighbor out there who, when he is there, I feel safer, you know, and um, he's a big you know, probably 200 pounds, 6'2 guy, and he knows the woods, and he knows his guns, and he knows all these things, and um, and I do feel like if anything were to happen out there, he would be the one to help protect us. So um, I just think it's one of those things that fall under active contrast, and as humans, we're complicated, so we have all sorts of fears, but, um, you know, they're, they're sometimes fleeting and sometimes temporary and sometimes, you know, some of them are more than others. In general, I am a little bit afraid of people, but I think that that's because I find that we do disappointing, weird things. Um, whereas like, you know, my dog can disappoint me too, but she doesn't do it like on purpose. And maybe people are disappointing on accident, but I don't know. I just feel like um, humans are really, really messy. And so, and the things that they're capable of are, are very scary. So I think that that's where that fear of people comes from. Your story about your weird uncle in <laughs> Burn the Place yeah. was absolutely terrifying. Uh, 
and want to talk more about the questions of gender that mm-hmm. you explore. You're listening to Coastline. Elena Regan, author of Fieldwork, a forager's memoir, and Michelin-starred chef is my guest today. After this short break, more about gender, maybe experimenting with poetry, and what's on the horizon for the Milkweed Inn. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Elena Regan is owner and chef of the Milkweed Inn, rustic and woodsy in the Hiawatha National Forest on Michigan's Upper Peninsula. She's also a Michelin starred chef and the author of two books, Burn the Place and Fieldwork, a forager's memoir. She's with me today after a foraging trip around the saltwater marshes of southeastern North Carolina. I do want to ask you what you found. Uh, But just to put a button on the discussion about fear and and men specifically, you Mm -hmm. said, who knows, because we're all complicated and Mm -hmm. who knows what inhabits us and what the origins are. But you did have a weird uncle and you write about a terrifying encounter with him Mm -hmm. in Burn the Place. Mm -hmm. Can you just tell us kind of briefly what happened there? And you don't have to tell us the end of the story. You should read the book. Yeah, um, I also included one in field work as well, but the one in Burn the Place was when we were out foraging and how he grabbed me in the woods, and um, luckily I was saved by my dad's friend. And again, nothing actually happened, but the fear of it happening and the intent, I believe, were there. And as a young girl, I sensed it. So... I think that there was certainly a catalyst for my having a fear of men because of that. Um, but uh, as I said, too, like there is also very many that I feel, you know, nurtured and protected by. So but it is that sense of being just having a little bit less power physically um, that really can, I think, you know, especially as a young child too you know you're just this like little thing so it's very easy to become afraid and I think for me I I remember all those things and I remember how I was feeling and I think that that's why I've become pretty good at writing memoir is that I can not only remember instances but also remember what I was feeling in those instances so um, yeah, but but I think that if uh, people re- read the books, they'll definitely see some things that they can identify with or just appreciate the honesty. You explore gender a great deal mm-hmm. in these memoirs. And you talk about as a little girl, you wanted to be identified as a little boy and you mm-hmm. wanted your and your dad would call you his son mm-hmm. sometimes. And you wanted your mom to get your hair cut mm-hmm. short like a little boy would have it. Mm-hmm. What what did i mean you've you've talked a little bit about that mm-hmm. in terms of having power and having strength mm-hmm. 
But when you look back on those feelings now, how do you think about gender now? Because sometimes I wonder if when little – I mean, I don't know. It's such a huge question. It's an emerging question. But right. are you talking about cultural gender or are you talking about, like, the actual – I don't know because when I was that age and when I was really young, I absolutely um, – believed that I was a little boy and that, um, you know, and still to this day on the inside, um, I absolutely feel like oftentimes a man, oftentimes I feel on the inside as I don't have a gender at all. Um, it's a very rare that I feel like a woman, even though that that's how I present and those, those are my pronouns. But um, so it's, yeah, it's all very, um, uh, it's a complicated thing, at least for me. And I think some young people choose to explore that and they have the um, care and the affirmations that they need. But, um, and some people are against it. And I can't speak to, you know, what's going on for any other little kid except for what my experience was. Um, but, what I will say, though, is I think it's really sad how people are treating it these days because I think had all those times when I was little and I was saying I was a little boy, um, would my parents, well, knowing the parents that I did have, now they would be the ones who are giving, would be giving me gender-affirming care. And I don't think that that would be a bad thing. I think I'd still be the same person as I am today, but only treated with different um, hormones and and other, um, you know, maybe other um, affirmations. And so, for example, though, my mom did cut my hair and f- let me dress like a little boy. And, and this was in the 80s. And I think what's sad now is that you, as a parent, can get in trouble for as simple as cutting your daughter's hair and letting her dress as a boy. Like my mom, who was so loving, and I think a fantastic mom, and my dad, who called me his son, who's a fantastic dad, uh, would actually be considered in some states um, child abusers, <laughs> you know. So that's that's absolutely crazy to me. Um, but, you know, I, I worry about speaking to this to a degree because I did have that sort of dysphoria and wanted to be a boy and thought I was a boy. And then I ended up, you know, being a woman, living as a woman. And I don't have interest in um, changing my gender to this day. But even though I might feel some somewhat different on the inside. So but I don't want to be taken as an example of like, see, here's why. Just let your kid go through this phase because I don't think it's necessarily a phase, you know, so. It it sounds so much more complicated and deeper than that. I mean, Mm -hmm. you said sometimes you don't feel like you have a gender. Yeah. And I think for some people, it, it, it's more simple. You know, I think that there's people who are trans who go from male to female or female to male. And it's like cut and dry. That's exactly what they wanted. And they knew it from a young age and it worked out how it was supposed to. You said in your book that so much of what you've done, actually, 
you say almost everything I've done since Bunny died, and that was your sister, mm-hmm. has been to cope with this grief. Mm-hmm. You wrote, I built my world around it. I do so much because I never want to slow down. It's a coping mechanism. People tell me how impressed they are by how much I do, but I tell them it's because I'm ill in a sense. It's because I literally cannot face what I feel. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, I mean, of course the death of a sister, especially a sister that you were so close to, is traumatic. Mm-hmm. No question. Why do you think her death has affected you so deeply and shaped really your life? Well, I think it's like a lot of these experiences, especially the ones that have been traumatic. um, I've just had some way, some, some like, I guess you would call it a, a trauma response. And I haven't been in enough therapy again to probably speak to this. But um, one thing that I've done over the years is uh, keep extremely, extremely busy. Like, I realize that when I slow down, whether it's like if I take a step back from writing or my actual physical work, um, which is, you know, working on the land or or in the kitchen, um, then I just the idle mind for me is not a good place. Um, and maybe this is well why I say I'm ill is because I have anxiety and depression that I'm not really medicated for, at least not right now. I have been in the past. and But um, I do these other things. Like I just am always keeping my mind busy or my body busy. And that helps me get through um, because there is a tremendous amount of grief in my life from her passing and, and um a, a whole bunch of uh, things, people and and um, things of the past that have been traumatic. But I, yeah, that's just been my solution is like keep myself extremely busy. So even when I'm at home or at the cabin and I'm not physically moving my body, then I'm usually like moving my mind and I'm reading and I'm writing at least that's what it's been like since 2015 um, when I started writing burn the place and then I finished that and almost immediately started writing field work and then once that was done I've um, started immediately working on this third book so I think that it's been a really great way for me to keep busy um, and uh, again I mean that's that's just for me it's it's probably not you know people like I said say like wow you know you run this in and you do this thing and you write a books and all this stuff but it's um it's not because I'm you know necessarily trying to um you know it's it's literally helps me you know, yeah, it's like my medicine. And so it's not because I'm just trying to be productive and get a bunch of books out there. It's almost like I can't help myself, but I feel good when I'm doing it. So and I think, like I said, yeah, a big part of that, it does help me when I really slow down and kind of think about it. It's also because it it keeps me from feeling it's just like any it's it's an addiction and which I talk about in the books, my addiction to alcohol and I've had an addiction to cigarettes luckily I quit smoking but um 
and I've over the years gone back and forth with alcohol and um, but also work um, so whether it's in the kitchen or if it's writing I'm certainly addicted to those things um, but they seem to at this point be manageable addictions you know so <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens if I ever you know lock myself in a room for good and won't come out because I'm I'm busy writing then maybe you know we'll have to bring in some extra help <laughs> you you've compared the sounds of the forest to the sound of the ocean and you've said that um, wild blueberries are forest caviar. Mm-hmm. What have you found foraging here in the saltwater marshes of southeastern North Carolina? Oh, this this has been amazing. Um, so it's true, though. I was on um, Vic's deck this morning and listening to the water, and it is very much like when I'm on my deck. Now, the the wind and the leaves in the Upper Peninsula isn't as constant as the waves, but when it does happen, there is a similarity. Um, so here, we went out looking for oysters and clams and mussels and stone crabs, um, but the tide was just a little bit too high, so we weren't able to get to the oyster beds or the um, clam beds. Uh, but Anna Shellam, who we went with, she had she was worried that that might happen, so she got us oysters and clams the day before, just in case. <laughs> so, but we were able to get um, mussels, which um, we got in in the like marshy mud, and then we went to another little island area where we collected sea beans, which is uh, a kind of seagrass. Um, and then we collected a little bit of cactus, which I was not pleased with the cactus. It's uh, those little pokers are, you know, it's not like I'm foraging very much cactus up in my parts. So uh, anyways, <laughs> I had little needles stuck in me that I could barely see. Um, but so we, we last night, we just had some of those things just barely, you know, we had the oysters raw and we had the uh, clams and mussels in the oven just popped enough to open them up. And it was some of the most incredible shellfish I have had. So, so perfectly sweet and briny and fresh. And I think that it's a real like secret uh, how good North Carolina shellfish and seafood is, um, because I don't think people are often thinking of this area as like the hub, but I think the waters are just still cold enough to make it what it needs to be. And um, yeah, it's so that it was a really fun way also to forage because collecting. You know, the mussels was very much like foraging. It's not like fishing, you know. And and I have done oyster harvesting before as well. So even though we didn't get to do it, I've, I've done it. And it also is very much like foraging. So that part was really, really cool. It's like, you know, foraging in the marshes is, is fantastic. So anybody who hasn't been to North Carolina, to the coast, and had... The seafood here is just missing out. 
I want to get, we only have a minute or so left. You you talk so much in your books about the contradiction between um, the death of animals and your love of animals and mm-hmm. how complicated that is. And mm-hmm. you you seem to recognize the necessary reality of it, but you'll never be able to completely mm-hmm. dissociate from mm-hmm. the death of a living creature, an animal. Mm-hmm. Where are you now in terms of eating meat and I know that sometimes you might serve moose tartare <laughs> at the milkweed yeah. inn, but you would you kill an animal yourself at this point other than a fish? <sighs> Frogs, I don't mind killing, even though I kind of hate it, but I'll do it. I mean, f- bullfrogs are so delicious. Um, and in a sense, you know, like... We are uh, killing these mussels and clams and oysters every time we pop them open. Um, and it yes, it does feel very different than a fish. I even struggle with that with fish. I probably would never do a deer or moose or bear, but I am more than happy to um, eat it and share it with others, and particularly the pieces that might not be um, as desired by some of the hunters and so I work with them a lot to make sure that I'm actually able to obtain some of the things that they might not want and then I try to serve it in the best way possible which I think makes it really special. That's this edition of Coastline. Elena Regan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. The books, Burn the Place and Fieldwork, a Forager's Memoir. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fresnel engineered this episode. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. You can find this episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. <laughs>